where you lived and how you grew up. You didn't have much to do with that either. Who said yes to your desire for their friendship? Who said yes when you asked them out on a date? Who said yes when you wanted to get into that school or work at that place? Or, and he goes on and he says, most of these decisions have been made by other people for you. And then he asks the question, what most affected their decision about you? And he argues that it's this trait that he calls likability. People will choose you or choose to give to you or say yes to you or let you in based on whether they like you or not. And then he breaks down what likability is into these four categories. He says the first uh, most introductory aspect of Likeability is friendliness. If you are friendly, people will tend to want to like you. Okay? And then he says the second trait is what he calls relevance. If you are friendly and you form an initial connection, people are inadvertently doing some kind of math in their head about whether you are relevant to them or not. And then if they find that you are relevant then they're waiting to feel if you feel with them. It's empathy. The third trait. And then he said this is the most important and most fundamental, foundational aspect of likability. And this is what gives real power to the other three. And he says it's what he calls realness. People are trying to figure out if you are an authentic person. If what you're presenting yourself as and who you say you are, if that's actually true. If you're speaking the truth. If you're relating from a genuine and true place. It's what he calls realness. And this is where I want us to spend our time. This is actually just an introduction. And uh, I like the way he puts this. And it's made some uh, big impact uh, in my life and how I assess myself at the end of, end of the day uh, is whether I was real, whether I was true. I think this isn't just me, but we all have a tendency towards deception, tendency towards image management, and a tendency to live out of our fears. We have a tendency towards deception, towards image management, and fear. And um, I've been thinking this week, especially intensely, about this question What makes a person likable? You know, if I had never read this book and I was just thrown this question, what would make me a likable person? And I have found that the most interesting and funny and compelling trait that I can offer to the world is my honesty. You know what's funny? Honesty is funny. When somebody's genuinely honest, it's humorous. You know all the stand-up comics I like? I watch stand-up comedy every single week. I know you can't tell, but I do. <laughs> there you go. You can tell. <laughs> um... 
is when comics are honest, when they're willing to be prophetic, when they're willing to say the thing that nobody else is saying, when they're willing to embarrass themselves and expose themselves. That's really funny, and people like that. You know, and... um, I was thinking back this week to all the church planners I've assessed, and I can't believe it, but it's in the hundreds of church planners I've assessed to be covenant church planters. And of all these people, what I have most liked and enjoyed and what's made the most lasting impact on me and what causes me to remember them rather than forget them and causes me to say a prayer for them and their church is whether they were honest whether I experienced what Tim Sanders calls realness when I encounter them. You know, in assessment centers, they would begin by putting their best foot forward. But the assessment center is three and a half days long. Nobody can do that for three and a half days. Right? And so by the second day, by the third day, they're forgetting that the cameras are on and all their junk is just coming out. And that's when the real assessment begins. Part of it is it has to be multiple days long because the first two days you get, really get nothing. Genuineness, honesty. I want to suggest to you today that Jesus was the most likable human being to ever walk this earth. That he was compelling and attractive. He was a force. I want to suggest to you that thousands upon thousands of people followed him. They were drawn to him. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. People would rather sit in his presence than eat, than sleep. They would forget about their life to be with this guy. You know what scripture says about him? That in him was light. That in him was no darkness at all. That when you experience Jesus, there was a genuineness to the utter extreme. And these rare and honest moments that sometimes you and I have with each other. You know these moments when you feel connected on a heart level to somebody? And it's so life-giving that these encounters was all Jesus had with people. There was no darkness with with him. And, And every moment that he related to people, he was relating from his genuine heartfelt self. He never told a lie. He never worried about his image. When he saw people, he saw people to their very bottom. And he loved them, and he embraced them, and he gave them his whole self. He accepted people just as they were, because he could only perceive people just as they were, not as they were presented. And so these life-giving moments, these rare, genuine moments were the norm for him. He is light, and there is no darkness at all in him. And the scripture that was read for us, says that he is faithful and he is righteous. Do you know anybody that can, be, that can be said, described similarly as this? Can you think of anybody that can be described as light in whom there is no darkness at all? 
Can you say that somebody is faithful and righteous? That's Jesus. Don't you already like him more? This is the thing that keeps me coming back to Christianity. It's not Christians. It's Christ. He is light. He is love. He is faithful. He is righteous. Can you imagine how likable and attractive Jesus was? So what I want us to do uh, this morning is to first have a word study. I want to take you through a rather thorough Bible study focusing on certain words. And then I want us to draw out some principles from this word study. And then I'm going to tell a story, uh, which is a rather vulnerable story. And then we're going to have a couple of application points, and then we'll be done. Okay? But what I need you to do is to give me your undivided attention, because this is going to take a little bit of work. Okay, and I did a lot of work on this, and two days out of the week I was sick, and so I worked extra hard. And so uh, I think there's some good fruit here, but we have to be willing to bite it and chew it and uh, digest it together. Okay, let's start with verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The word I want you to focus on is the word fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. Say that with me. Koinonia. And in the Greek, this is a business-oriented word. And it means business or partnership together. And so, for example, the scriptures tell us that Peter, the apostle, the disciple, was in the fishing koinonia with James and John. Were they friends? Yes. Were they just friends? No. They became friends by being in the same business together. This is where, where J.R. Tolkien gets the word, uh, title of his book, The Fellowship of the Ring, which means that these random people, these natural enemies, became the very best of friends through their common mission of destroying the ring of power in the fires of Mount Mordor, right? They hated each other. They were sworn enemies in some cases, but they became lovers of each other's souls through their common business. Another way to say that is they are seeing the same thing together. And this is the essence of the meaning of the word koinonia or fellowship, seeing the same thing. Second in verse 6 is the word truth. We lie and do not practice the truth. This is the Greek word aletheia. Say that together. Aletheia. And it doesn't mean truth the way we think of truth. We in our society, we're in a pluralistic society, we think of truth as an opinion that you hold. Wasn't that good? I thought of that myself this week. Right? It's true because I think it. Aletheia means objectivity, not subjectivity. It's true, and this is a literal definition, objectivity or true under any consideration, free from affection, interest, or pressure. Man, isn't that good? 
What it means is that from any angle, under any light, it's the same thing. Because there's only one thing. Aletheia, objectivity. And what verse 6 is saying is that if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we lose all objectivity. There's a sermon in there somewhere. Man. Okay, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the word I want you to focus on is the word cleanses. It's the Greek word kathrize. Kathrize. Say that. Kathrize. It means to make pure or to improve, uh, remove impurity. For example, what is pure gold? It's just gold. There is nothing else. So pure actually just means one thing. To have one thing means to be pure. To have just gold is pure gold. And so this word kathrize means to make one again. So here are these things that are multiple things. It's all mixed up. It's messy. It's dirty. But when you separate out everything else and you have one thing again, that's the word cleanses. Okay. Second, in verse 7, is the word sin. Now, there are three different words for the word sin. This word in the Greek is the word hamartia. Ready? Hamartia. And it means to miss the one mark. And what it means is that there's just one point. One point. I was reading an article this week about this idea of things not being in motion. And it's just about impossible for things to not be in motion. Everything is motion. But there's a theoretical motionlessness. And it's the dead center of a spinning circle. But it only exists on paper because theoretically there is no dead center. You could keep going more central. But that's what this is kind of talking about. There's just this one theoretical point. And if you miss that point, you have sinned to stray from the one mark. That's this word, sin. Okay, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the word I want us to zero in on is the word deceiving. It's the Greek word planao. Planao. Hard to say, right? Ready? Planao. It means to stray from the one path. Now, it doesn't say actually literally the one path. It says stray from the path. Meaning there's only one path. It's not straying from a path. It's straying from the path. There's one path and if you stray from it, you are deceiving another person or yourself. Okay, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word highlighted here is the word confess. This is kind of a fun word. It's the Greek word homo logeo. Okay, ready? Homo logeo. Homo means the same thing. The same. And logeo means to say the word or to say or to speak. And so the word confess is two words put together meaning to say the same thing. The word logos means either word or the word reason or logic, the rationale, the meaning of something, right? And so when you homologeo, when you're confessing, it means you are in agreement. You're saying the same thing. You're repeating the one meaning or the one truth. So confess means to say the same thing, to agree with the one meaning. And then again in verse 9, the word forgive. And it's the Greek word, let me say this right, afiemi, afiemi, ready? Afiemi. And it means to send away or to separate. So when God is forgiving us, he is separating us from our sins. Remember, he's removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. And another way to understand this is related to the word cleanse. It means to make pure or to make just a single element again. We are no longer defiled by sin, mixed in with sin, but sin has been separated out from us. Now, what do all these words have in common? These are all the meanings together. Same thing, one thing, make one, one mark, one path, same thing, one thing. Isn't this amazing? What is John, the writer of this letter, trying to convey? If we ask the question of authorial intent, who was John writing to? What was his intention? You could almost gather it just from this page right here. He was writing to a church that was being threatened by a new Christian sect that had arisen called the Gnostics with a G. And the Gnostics didn't believe in the existence of sin. They believed that spirituality didn't encompass the human body. It was just about our immaterial souls. Therefore, you can do whatever you wanted with your body. And you were unable to sin because you were only and just a soul. These were the Gnostics. And he was writing this letter to make one point. And you know what that point was? That there is such a thing as sin. That sin is real. That we are sinners. That there's such a thing as truth. Do you know there's such a thing as objective Absolute truth. 
and doesn't have to do with what we think. That's why I don't think we like truth. We like pluralism. Because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't have to. It's true whether you think it, believe it, know it, learn it. It doesn't matter. It still remains true. And this is what John was trying to say. There is one God, one truth, and he holds it. There is such a thing as light. There's such a thing as darkness. Here's another way to look at this passage. If you, I think it's one of these slides. There we go. All of these words that are highlighted here for you on the screen, these are all synonyms. The message we have heard from him. God is light. No darkness at all. Fellowship with him. The truth. Walk in the light. He himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. Blood of Jesus cleanses us. Truth. Confess our sins. He is faithful. He is righteous. He forgives us our sins. He cleanses from all unrighteousness. And his word. These are all synonyms talking about the same thing. And then, these are all synonyms. Darkness, darkness, lie, not practicing the truth, sin, saying we have no sin, deceiving ourselves, truth is not in us, sins, sins, unrighteousness, say we have not sinned, liar, and his word is not in us. This passage is giving you two divergent roads. You know, sometimes we make things black and white to make things clear, to help us to see. Take complexity one step further and you have simplicity. I thought of that myself too this week. And John is saying, what will you choose, light or darkness? Will you choose sin Or will you choose forgiveness? Will you choose denial? Or will you choose objectivity? Will you choose isolation? Or will you choose fellowship? Do you want to be with God or without God? There is no middle road here. So let's get to the principles here. The first principles have to do with this idea of sin. The first principle is that sin is real. We talk about mistakes. We talk about messing up. We talk about forgetting. We use words like just. I just did this or I just did. We didn't just anything. We sin. And part of what it means to believe in Jesus is that we are sinners. And it's okay to come clean about the fact that we sin. Sin is a reality. We don't label ourselves as Gnostics with a G. But we're functional Gnostics. We live as if sin isn't real. Sin is Real. So in this Passion Week, this week, I want to give you an assignment. Try doing this. Try using this word sin as much as possible to describe yourself this week. Instead of the word just 
or mistake or forgot or happened to or because or any of these rationalization or self-justifying language or self-excusing language. Use the word sin instead. I sinned. I'm evil. Yes, choice was an actual element in my thinking. And I made a bad one. And I tend to make bad choices. And then I lie about it. I'm sorry I'm late because I disrespect you. It's not because of anything. I'm sin. I'm I'm a sinful person. Okay? Second principle about sin is that sin involves self-deception. And denial ain't just a river in Egypt. I didn't make that one up. (laughs) We lose objectivity as soon as we sin. Do you know what it means to have your judgment impaired? That means that if you're drinking alcohol, you don't have the right to make the decision at the end of the evening if you are okay to drive or not. Why? Why is that part of the program? Because by the time you are making the decision to decide for yourself whether you are okay to drive or not, by that time, your judgment is already impaired. So you don't have the ability, the objectivity to decide if you are able to drive or not. And what John is saying here is, if you sin, and then he says you do, your judgment is impaired. If you find yourself thinking, well, I'm not really a bad person, your judgment is impaired. We lost our ability to decide, to pass judgment on ourselves a long, long, long time ago. Your thoughts about yourself, whether they be good, whether they be bad, whether they be self-justifying or self-uplifting, is irrelevant to God. God doesn't care what you think about you. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, I know you judge me and you think I'm a bad guy. But I want to tell you, I don't care what you think about me. And then he says, I don't care what I think about me. Because I am God's servant. And by his judgments, God's servants either stand or fall, but he is able to make me stand. Because that's God. That's God's job. It's his prerogative. Have you ever tried to talk to people about Christianity, about sin, about Jesus? I have lots of times. I do it for a living also. And I cannot tell you how at the core of the human heart, we genuinely believe that we are okay. We are not okay. And if ever you find yourself thinking that you are okay, your judgment is impaired. We have a million illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. We are 
broken people. We are addicted to our addictions on multiple levels. You know what an addiction is? An addiction is when you have a coping mechanism for a point of pain, a place where there is pain, you develop a coping mechanism, but then you get dependent on the mechanism itself and you never even address the pain that drove you to the coping mechanism in the first place. And then you develop another mechanism to help you cope with the original coping mechanism. Your motives have motives which have motives. The heart, above all else, is deceitful. We are bad people, folks. And we have been bad for a long, long time. Third principle. Sin isolates. Sin darkens. Sin separates us from the very resources we need most. All of the help you will ever receive come from God through people. And what separates you from the very help you need are your secrets. The power of sin is in its secrecy. And secrecy loves darkness. And here's what the passage says. If you confess your sin, not just that you did something wrong, but that you're just wrong on the inside. Something is wrong. That you are broken. You are damaged goods. And you need help. And when you are able to admit that, then all of a sudden there is light in the room. There is oxygen. And people come over to your side. And they see things that will be helpful for you. And they're able to be resources to you. And God is able to love on you through them. Hope shows up when people who care show up. But if you are in denial about the fact that you need help, and you are clinging to your sin and your sinfulness. You're in isolation, my friends. You are cut off from air and from water. And you're slowly but surely dying. You are spiraling on a suicidal path towards death and destruction. And this is true on a pretty deep, emotional, existential level. But this is also true on a very shallow, sort of everyday level. Going back to likability a little bit, you know who I feel the safest with? I feel safest with people who are self-deprecating, who are quick to share about themselves and their brokenness, who aren't making speeches all the time about all that they know and have experienced and talking about other people, but who are willing to let me in and let me get close to them. These are the people I feel the safest with. And these are the people I feel most drawn to. These are the people at the end of an interaction, I think, he's a good guy. She's a good woman. I, I like her. I conclude to myself, 
gosh, I, I, I like her. I like him. And I don't always articulate what just happened or why I feel that way. But if I analyze it, it's because there was a connection that was made. And the connection was made because we mutually became vulnerable and shared of ourselves. That is, we confessed ourselves. We were confessional with each other. And when we practiced confessioning, con- uh, confessing, there was light. There was fellowship. God was in our midst. There was a way that we related that invited Jesus to be in our midst. Another way to say that is, if you are not a confessional people, uh, uh, if you're not a confessional person, people are not going to like you. That means. There are people, a bunch of people in your life that are actively or passive actively, (laughs) passive aggressively avoiding you. Uh, a, A couple of other principles here. Confession, on the other hand, instantly turns this whole ship around. Sometimes for me, admitting Confessing something feels like the most powerless thing I can do. It would give people valid, tangible reason why they ought to leave. But it has the exact opposite effect. It's actually the most powerful thing I can do because it connects me to all the resources that I ever need to solve all my problems. And what I fear will break me actually is the only thing that can make me. And when I confess, it brings God and people over to my side. And so the second principle is by confession, I'm able to see, I feel connection, and I am ultimately saved. Third principle under confession, is that there is always, therefore, a confession hiding behind every single issue I've ever dealt with. And this is a little bit of a difficult pill to swallow. But think about this for a second. Every topic or issue you have ever talked about with anybody, you bring yourself to. Therefore, there is some subjectivity in your understanding of that issue or topic. And because of that subjectivity, yourself and therefore your sinfulness gets in the way. There is always some conflict of interest involved. There is nothing we've ever talked about or dealt with in our life where there wasn't a conflict of interest. There is always something we're getting out of it, whichever way that conversation goes. Let me share a story with you. And uh, this story is really personal to me. This is something that's um, uh, vulnerable, and it's not something where I'm saying, like, I once was blind, but now I see. What I'm saying is, this is my current blindness. And so I'm going to let you in, and I'm going to let you get close here. 
And uh, I want to invite you not to make jokes about, lots of you make jokes about my stories to me, and it's all good. But this one, it might hurt me a little, because I'm still going through it. Okay. Um, I have been thinking about this idea um, this past year and a lot these days about this idea of my inner jerk is my nickname for it. It's my inner jerk. And um, he lives inside of me. And he is very comfortable there. He's been with me for as long as I can remember. And I feel like I'm just always beating down or managing this inner jerk inside of me. It's just like right below the surface. And uh, some of you... For you, this may be a a relief that there's some self-awareness about this on my part. Some of you think I'm a nice guy. And uh, sometimes I can uh, play nice. But most of the times, I feel pretty preoccupied managing this inner jerk in me. And this is a new thing for me, naming the fact that I have this inner jerk. And Susie has been dealing with this inner jerk in me uh, for 16 years. Um. But uh, for me, this is rather new. And I was having a breakthrough of a week about this inner jerk this week. I was talking with my spiritual director that I meet with once a month. And uh, I was saying, you know, Helen, I have this um, inner jerk. And she said, you know, let's talk about this inner jerk. I said, yeah, I want to talk about that. And uh, she says, um, uh, how old is your inner jerk? Isn't that an interesting question? So I'm thinking about it, and I said, you know, my best guess would be that he's a teenager. And she says, uh, what's his name? I said, gosh, I guess his name is Inner Jerk. That's what I, I kind of named him like last week. His name is Inner Jerk. And then um, she says, uh, how do you relate to him? Well, I, I don't like him. I, I, just, I just kind of feel like I'm beating him down all day. He's just right there. He's just ready to be a jerk all the time. And, uh, and she says, so uh, is your inner jerk helped by condemnation? That's a very interesting question. And my answer was no. Actually, I think condemnation is what feeds this inner jerk. So she says, you beating him down and you hating him, does that help? I said, I guess not, because he's been getting stronger for, for a long time. That's good, okay? Says, well, when does, he, when does he, you know, rear his ugly head? And I said, well, I guess when, um, when he feels unsafe. Said, when does he feel unsafe? I said, all the time. He just, he feels unsafe on this planet, like here, in this world, he feels unsafe. This is an unsafe world to him. And she said, so he's kind of, uh, he's preemptively violent. I said, yeah. He sort of will be a jerk when he senses a threat. But he's threatened all the time. It's like, she said, you must be tired. I said, I am tired. I'm very tired. And then she's asked this very uh, helpful question. She said, so um, what do you, how do you help a troubled teenager? Well, 
I, um, I guess you have to give them a lot of time, a lot of space. You have to be gracious. You have to provide mentors, and they need affirmation, and they need challenge. They need regular discipline. And I've been working through this question. How can I mentor my younger teenager inner jerk self? This has been a really powerful confession for me. And on Wednesday, uh, with one of my daughters, I had the most dramatic and I think maybe the most successful and the best, by far, the best parenting moment I've ever had. And it all started with me sharing about my inner jerk and how I think I got, where I think I got it from. And then apologizing for the fact that I, I, I think I may have transmitted it to you. And it was a really powerful father-to-child moment. Ten minutes talking about this, and the whole room changed. There was air in the room. The room was filled with light and laughter and sense of connection and sense of hope. We were going to be okay. It was going to be a good day. And we were going to have a good time. And we're going to be together. The relationship wasn't broken. It wasn't threatened. It wasn't weakened. It was stronger. It was better. And somehow it started with confession. Okay, two two, uh, application points. The first application point is... Exorcism by incorporation. What does that mean? See, I've had a very productive week, folks. (laughs) Exorcism by incorporation. It means that we confess our sins to one another. That there is healing to be found in our midst. Midst. I have a sermon feedback team, and they've been criticizing the fact uh, how I say the word midst. midst. They said, I'm forgetting the D. So um, I was, that was a shout-out to my sermon feedback team. <laughs> we all have teenagers inside, and we need to confess it. We need to be absorbent. We need to be patient with each other. We need to just stop or stop just talking about other people. We need to stop just talking about other things. We need to bring our conversations back to confessional statements about ourselves. We need to acknowledge the reality that for a lot of us, people are avoiding us and people don't like us. And we don't have to do some fancy schmancy life rehab to get people to like us. We just have to do what the Bible says and start confessing our sins to each other. Christ draws near to the brokenhearted. And he said, you call me rabbi, you call me teacher, but I call you friends because I share myself with you. We acknowledge the fact that we are all sinners that at any given moment, our sin is a part of whatever dialogue is happening. And we lead with that and we finish with that. And that feels really scary and it feels like powerlessness. 
But in that is power. In that is light. Okay, exorcism by incorporation. Second application is you and I, we don't make decisions. We don't bear the weight of choices in our lives. We simply seek more light. What that means is this. The very best decisions you've ever made in your life are you submitting to the truth of a matter. Then when you are confronted with an issue, with a problem, with a conversation, you're not going to just pick yourself up by your bootstraps or man up and bear the weight of this issue and make a decision. What you are going to do is confess your limitations, confess your weaknesses, and ask for help and seek more light. And as you engage in the process of light-seeking and confessing your weaknesses, then truth and light is found. That whether it's a you know, parenting problem, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a church decision or a financial matter, you seek more light. And you lead and you finish with your confessions. Allow me to end by reading verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. And we pray that this word would be in us and over us and under us and carry us this week and beyond. I pray that we may be a confessing community. That we would be a compelling community, a likable community. That many would be drawn to you through us. Not because we are strong, not because we are competent, not because we are shiny and beautiful people but because we are broken and we are accessible and we are approachable and we are safe because our holiness is not of of ourselves, but of you. Lord, help us to trust you, to come before you and confess our sins and confess our sinfulness. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.